joining us online, who made the, the wise choice to stay on the warm side of the window and, uh, and worship from home. Uh, whenever you're joining us, because it may not be today, it may be in the days ahead, know this. On the calendar, this is the middle of the bleak midwinter in Canada. That's calendar time. January 2nd, first Sunday in the new year. This is the year, right? Please tell me, this is the year when at long last we take COVID and we consign it to the ash heap of history, right? This is the year. But this isn't just calendar time, this is also sacred time. And on the church's calendar, this is also the week that we celebrate Epiphany. Uh, That's not a particularly familiar word for those who are raised in church outside of some of the more formal traditions, Anglicanism and Lutheranism. But epiphany means the coming of the light, epiphanos. The light shines all around. It's still part of the Christmas season. In fact, it's the season where traditionally we have read together the story of those great star followers that Bashar just read for us, the story of the wandering Magi. It made me think this week of all of the different names and holidays and celebrations that are clamoring for our attention in this one short span of time during the months of December and early into the new year. And a friend of mine put together a list of some of the things that we celebrate that I found it kind of amusing. So here it is. Here's the list. December 5th is National Ninja Day. Did you know that? National Ninja Day. And you say, well, I didn't see that one coming. That's the point. Think about it. (laughs) Of course, there's Hanukkah. There's Kwanzaa. December 16th, I missed this one, is Chocolate Covered Anything Day, which I kind of wish would catch on because what a good idea. Anything covered in chocolate is awesome because even if you don't like the thing, you could just take the chocolate off it and ignore the rest. But December the 18th is National Wear a Plunger on Your Head Day. Glad that one didn't catch on. And then, of course, for Seinfeld fans, December 23rd is Festivus. Festivus for the rest of us. You remember, you have your poll and you're ready for the, the traditional airing of grievances. And no, no Seinfeld fans here. Okay. And then there is, of course, the Christmas story. And in the days following the story that we read on Christmas Eve comes this account from Matthew 2 of the wise men, what I would call the seeker's chapter of the Bible, because it talks about how people go searching for God and, and how they find him. So we have here the story of the Magi. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open them up with me to Matthew chapter 2, chapter two this seeker's story. There is something mysterious, something, something kind of wondrous about this age-old picture. You have that scene in mind where, where across a continent over the desert sands, beneath the stars, there is this curious caravan that makes its way through the night. From distant lands, they have read the signs and the portents up in the night sky, and they have discerned an incredible truth, a truth that would elude the vast majority of people for decades to come. 
And we know them as the wise men, or if you use the word that's used of them in the Gospels, we know them as the magi, the word from which we we get the word magic. And indeed, it is kind of a story that's filled with this wonder to it. We wonder who were these strange visitors who came from the East? What were they looking? Why such a precious invitation given to them? And why are they the only ones who seem to have received it? Now, there, there's paintings that we have and, and all the pageants that we celebrate Christmas after Christmas. They kind of agree. We see them as monarchs, as kings, as ambassadors, as these, these wealthy erudite men, astrologers. We three kings of Orient are, you know the song, three wise men. And we like to envision them decked out in colorful attire because why else did we keep all those bathrobes from the 1970s except to dress up our kids in them for the pageant every year? We prefer to see them with camels in the background. And for centuries, we have speculated about their identity. Who were they? And not all of the answers are given to us, at least not in the Bible. But perhaps there is just enough, just enough there to pique our curiosity and to guide our understanding of who they might have been. We know this. We know they were first sighted in the vicinity in and around Jerusalem. And they were asking questions. They were sort of prodding around the edges of the story that was about to unfold. Where's the newborn king? Which king? The newborn king of the Jews, they asked. Well, how did you know about a newborn king? Well, we saw a star. It was rising in the east. And we watched it rise. And as we saw it climb into the skies, we made our way here. Why? We come to worship him. Now, Jerusalem is still a cosmopolitan city, even in the ancient world. So out-of-towners aren't foreign to them. They're not unfamiliar to them. The local folk would have recognized them, probably would have seen other people who'd come from the east, from Persia or from Arabia. Their interest in the stars would have marked them out as astrologers, as readers of the skies. But it probably isn't the first time they'd encountered those who had... uh, who had looked up into the heavens with awe and wonder and tried to understand what God was doing there. But these visitors, they had made their way from that distant place to Judea, a long journey, an arduous journey, following just one point of light in the sky. Now that was something kind of new. You came from the east. You normally came as part of the spice trade. You came for commerce You didn't come following some celestial map, and you certainly didn't come looking for the king of the Jews, who, after all, were kind of a small people in the landscape of a big world in the ancient Near East, where there were powers like Egypt and Babylon and the great Arabian empires. So the Magi, they they were asking questions. And they were given some answers because I think people were probably curious about the questions they raised. They opened up the ancient scrolls. They looked through the ancient wisdom. They looked for explanation of where this this newborn king would be born. And they found the answer in an ancient text that you have actually in front of you. If you have your Bibles, it's the book of Micah. 
In the book of Micah, in chapter 5, verse 2, a town is pointed out that would have future significance that at the time Micah probably would have had no conception of. But listen to what it says in Micah chapter 5. In verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, even though you're small among all the clans of Judah, to be small among the clans of Judah, Judah being small along, among the nations of the world means you were small indeed. Bethlehem was then, and to some extent still is today, were it not for the Christmas story, a kind of a backwater place in the world. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, even though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from on, from on old and from the ancient of times. And so these, these magi, these wise men, now armed with a little bit of knowledge, they continue their quest. And Matthew tells us, to their delight, the star appeared again at night and guided them a little bit further and eventually took them right to the doorstep of a house where they found the unassuming family that they were looking for. And painters and pageant writers through the ages, we have delighted in painting the story. And we love to imagine it. There's Jesus still in the manger. There's all the barnyard animals bowing low around him. Shepherds still peeking in from outside. Mary and Joseph. Uh, Mary's still exhausted, but somehow sitting up, looking angelic, hands folded over the manger. And the wise men, camel alongside, just making their way through the door. A beautiful picture. One we create every year on our mantle with our own crash, and maybe you do too. Uh, trouble is, it's the wrong picture, <laughs> right? Uh, it, it's the wrong picture. When you read Matthew really closely, uh, Matthew's quite specific. Where does he find Mary, Joseph, Jesus? In a house, in a house, which would make sense. Because the account that you're reading is not the same as the account we read together on Christmas Eve. Some time has transpired. And so that emergency stay, that overnight rushed finding of accommodation so that Mary could give birth, that's now long in the rearview mirror. And, and days later, as time has passed, they've found a place to live. And so they're situated now in a more suitable home. And it's a bit later that, that the three of them, the wise men, made their way in. Or was it three? We don't probably really know that. I mean, traditionally, we've been given the names of the three. You may have heard them before. Baltazar, Melchior, and Caspar. Great names, right? And maybe it was their names, but... The earliest record we have of the names is from the 7th, 7th century. So it may be that somebody was just writing a Christmas pageant and needed to give names to them. And so they picked names for three of these mysterious visitors because we don't really know anything about their number. But maybe we've just kind of assumed that because they didn't come empty-handed, because they came bearing three gifts that there might have been at least three gift bearers. And so we settled on the number three, and we gave them names. 
But actually, we don't, we don't probably know either of those things for sure. But there are some things that we do know for sure. We know that just as certainly as the shepherds took the low road to Jesus, here you have three or more or whatever the number was who took the high road. These were among the elite. The elite. They, they were people of great wisdom. They were people of means who could afford the journey and afford the lavish gifts that were offered at the end of the journey. The shepherds took the low road. They took the high road. One group comes from an area of, well, peasantry, I guess, from, from the lowest strata of society. One from a setting of wealth and wisdom. One comes on that unforgettable night. The other, they arrive sometime later. They came by different roads, from different places, from different classes, but they left with the same inspired hearts. Shepherds, we're told, you remember this Christmas Eve, they went back to their flocks doing what? Glorifying God and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen, just as it was told to them. The wise men, they also went back. You see at the end of Matthew 2 that we read in verse 12, the wise men, they went back to their own country, but by a different route. Why? Well, they'd been given another sign, another indication, a dream that King Herod, and we'll come back to him, King Herod represented a threat to their very lives. So there you have the epiphany story, the story of the wise men. What a difference a week makes. What a difference a week makes. The week from Christmas to the following Sunday is a long time. I don't know as long in your life, filled with busyness and activities and maybe tension and exhaustion, and you don't want to see another oven for another year or any of that stuff. But, but I mean, the week that's passed in the life of the characters in the story of Jesus' birth. Because on Christmas Eve, the story just kind of oozes wonder and amazement, and sort of worldwide. On Christmas Eve, we we have the feeling that the world stops. Even post-Christian parts of the world, we still stop. The trains stop running. Businesses stop their activities. And, And in our lives, we suspend, at least for a time, our cynicism and our judgment. And we're glad to be bathed for a few moments just in the in the innocence of the story. The innocence of God's, what would you call it, holy intrusion into the world. The innocent power of, of God bringing love and reconciliation to a world that, that maybe had never associated God with those things. The desperate innocence of believing that we and our world, we can begin over again. What a difference a week makes. I mean, for children, the whole thing ends too soon, doesn't it? But it's not just for children. We easily forget and we return to our same old routines, maybe changed in some small way, maybe still feeling a little warm inside, but, but back to our same tired lives. The story of Epiphany, the story of the wise men, remind us that the ripple effects of Jesus' birth continued days, weeks, 
months, centuries after his birth. What a difference a week made in the life of the world. Now the innocence and the quaintness of the story gives way to something else. Matthew chapter 2. I want you just to peek ahead to what happens after the story that we read. Just glance through those verses. And what do you see there? You see the maniacal evil and violence and scheming of Herod. What a difference a week makes. I mean, here you have a part of the Bible that is just candid about the reality of evil and terror and brutality in the world. And, you know, let's be honest, we'd like to skip over these bits because they don't fit well with the warmth and the kind of, I don't know, that, that nice fireside sonority of the Christmas story. We'd like to just as soon not read the slaughter of the innocent, all the little boys who are wiped off the face of the map because some tyrant in his own fear and clamoring for power couldn't stand the thought of a young rival. We prefer to keep things just nice and romantic. But a week after Christmas, the Bible brings us face to face with the brutal reality that there is evil, that there is rage, that there is corruption and conniving, and that these are all features of a fallen world. And a week later, the Christmas story has a different edge to it. It's a refugee story. It's a story of a family fleeing for their lives to a distant land. A week later, things are different. Think about the difference in the life of the baby, of Jesus. I mean, the baby is largely passive in the story, right? Uh, Not speaking, not acting, but the baby, Jesus, is still the driving force in the Christmas story. Everything happens because of Jesus. On Christmas Eve, the baby is honored, worshipped, adored. It's that lovely scene. And we enhance it nicely with all the animals who get in and on the action. But in the next episode, a week later, everything changed. The background takes on kind of a chill to it. The baby is still passive. Jesus is not speaking, not acting. But the presence of the baby, of Jesus, has now intruded in the world and everything changed. The ripples of God's arrival in the world are starting to affect everything. And from the very beginning, the power of Jesus' presence in the world comes as a challenge. And we observe a couple of things about Jesus by the way that people respond to him. First, he's a threat. He's a threat to the whole world when it's organized in unjust and greedy and brutal ways. He's a threat to the world that has tipped off its axis and is now bent on practices that are corrupt and degrading and demean the image of God in God's people. Just one week after the birth, Jesus threatens all the destructive ways the world is organized. And as life goes out into adulthood, Jesus just keeps on threatening all that's sinful and disordered in the world. In his very person, in his conduct, in in his choices, in his words, in his teachings, Jesus unleashes power for goodness. He sets in motion new dreams that people have for real freedom, 
passion for justice, miracles of healing. This was the testimony of his life, that wherever he went, the blind saw, the lame walked, the poor rejoiced, the dead lived again. And those who held the reins of power hated him for it and plotted his execution. Here's the second thing, though. Not only is Jesus a threat to the powers of the world, Jesus himself becomes threatened by those powers. You sense his vulnerability. Being whisked off in the middle of the night as that young refugee family seeks safety in the land of Egypt. He's helpless, or at least he seems helpless. We know that he's not. And even when Jesus becomes a man, a man on the move, he continues to be, by his own description, resourceless. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, no home, no belongings. Weaponless. All who live by the sword shall die by the sword. Peter, put down your sword. Resourceless, weaponless, defenseless. He is, as we know, occupied by another purpose, a greater purpose. One that the world doesn't know, doesn't respect, thinks it can destroy. One that ultimately in the vulnerability and the courage and the sacrifice of Jesus culminates in the cross because of course, I mean, of course, that's what it was always going to be about. Perfect strength welded into weakness. Perfect authority exemplified in gentleness. Perfect sovereignty now revealed in grace. In the face of that, all the Herods of the world are turned into frightening, raging, raving, maniacal animals. That's the power of Jesus. The power embodied here in the Christmas story, in the face of Herod. So here we are, one week into the story, and the sense the issue is joined. The fight is on. The age-old conflict between the forces of destruction and the forces of reconciliation, between grace and hate. Cunning Herod has come with his brutalizing power unleashed into the world. Jesus has become both a threat and threatened. And at this point, I hope you feel yourself drawn into the story. Because it's precisely at that point that our lives hang. And it's there that we have to make a decision. We pick our side. The world in which we live our faith, the world in which faith is confessed and practiced, it's not an easy world. And you must choose. You must put your money down and play the odds And bet your life. The wise men, they made their choice. Honoring God. Defying Herod. Taking the good news home. The shepherds, they made their choice. Down through the centuries, God's people have made their choice. And so it is then on that that highway vanishing into the east that we lose sight of the wise men. Mysteriously they appeared, mysteriously they're gone. And we're left still with questions about them. How were their lives changed? 
What happened when they went back to their homeland with this message? What became of those remarkable gifts? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. And again, plays and pageants, they've all offered their imaginary answers. But the better questions, the questions posed in our own hearts, those are clearly answered in Matthew's brief sketch of the Magi. I want to close just by by giving you four of them. Four questions, and then suggesting that there are four answers that will shape the way that this story lands in your life. And what happens another week from now, and another week, and another week. First question posed by the story of the Magi is, who is it that comes? Who should seek this King of Kings and Lord of Lords? And, and we see that with great joy, it's both the shepherds and the sheikhs. It, it is all alike who are invited to come, the rich and the poor, the up and out and the down and out, neighbors and newcomers. We all have a place at the foot of the manger. Second question, how do we find our way there? The Magi, they followed the heavens and they followed their hearts. Is it any different for us? The glory of God is written large on the canvas of the world. The heavens themselves declare the glory of God. You with eyes to see, ears to hear, senses to be wet with the appetite of the Father's world. You'll be drawn to the architect of creation, but not just the heavens, also the heart. God's voice still calls from within. Maybe you feel it. That that spine-tingling little whisper that says, don't let this season pass until you have allowed the glory of God to pass in front of you and leave you changed. The wise men followed the light of a star. God accommodated their limited wisdom. How much greater is the wisdom available to us? God still invites us. He still speaks. The invitation is still there. Wherever our eyes may linger and wherever we may feel him nudging and prompting within. Here's a third question. What is it that we can bring? That's the story that's raised every year by the wise men. What gifts do we bring? I mean, the Magi and the shepherds together, they teach us that we bring whatever we've got in our hands at the time. The visitors, they brought the gifts most logical to them. Gifts that maybe would be fit for an emperor. The shepherds, they brought only their delight. And they brought their praise. And neither gift was rejected. You bring what you have. You bring who you are. And then here's the last question, and on this we'll close. Where do we go now? Where do we go from here? This week, when you start packing up the decorations and drag the tree out to the parking lot, when your Bible gets folded up, hopefully not for another year, but where do you go now? The Magi, they made their way home, but they went a different way. So do we, I hope. 
in the presence of God, as you go forward, you go a different way. In a sense, all the roads that we've traveled become new to us. They all lead to the home that the child has prepared for us. And whatever the gifts we bring, they're obscured now in the brilliance of the one gift that has become our own. Epiphany invites us actually to become the wise women and the wise men of the story. To follow their path, to find their wonder, to take our place at the footsteps of the newborn king. You know the words star of wonder, star of night, star of royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding. Guide us to thy perfect light. Let's pray for God's guidance now. Guide us now, Lord. Guide us from where we are to that place you need to take us. We, we don't want to leave the Christmas season behind without leaving changed forever by the wonder of the newborn king by the miracle of God incarnate, by the reality of of God's presence in human history and now through the gift of Christ in the human heart. And God, so would you do your work in us, prompting us, teasing out of us those places in our lives where, where maybe we're not fully surrendered, setting before us new paths for the new year. And as we find our way home, doing so not on the same time-traveled routes, but with new ways, with new goals, with new power, with new joy in our steps, with new bounce in our lives, with the presence of the living, reigning Christ in us.